Hello and welcome to the London School of Theology podcast. You are listening to our weekly chapel service. London School of Theology. Forming disciples. Resourcing churches. Impacting society. Our readings this morning resource further reflection on scripture and in a sense build on Conrad's um, sermon last week. Thank you, Conrad. It was magisterial. It was a product of a life's work spent in the teaching of Jesus. And in it, Conrad demonstrated the centrality of Scripture in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus, Scripture is the authoritative text. It's appropriate then that we reflect today not only on the relationship between Scripture and authority held for the Lord Jesus and ourselves, but because it's Valentine's Day, what it means to love scripture and ironically its authority. But first we need to address the theological elephant in the room. Authority is an ugly word. It lacks sophistication and in many ways it's just has too many negative responses. Quite frankly, it needs a complete makeover if it's to have any place in today's society. It's one of those words that carries its own distinctive smell, and it's not sweet or enticing. Rather, it's pungent. It's just downright offensive. And I don't think I'm too far off the mark then in saying that for everyone, or most of us in this room who are products of late modern Western culture, there's there's an underlying love-hate relationship with authority. We love it. We love authority when it goes our way. Tax breaks, bring them on. But we hate it when they don't. And so we need to be honest about the fact that we bring that tension to bear as soon as we mention the word authority and couple it with scripture. Now, none of this should be at all surprising to those of us who understand our Western Enlightenment inheritance. The whole thrust of the modern project was to usher in an alternative gospel with its baptism into self-freedom and autonomy. This meant that any alternative notions of authority were starkly opposed, if not annihilated. And the result today is that authority is a word that, let's be honest here, it needs to be domesticated. It's the wolf in the pack that needs to become a nice little Shetland sheepdog. It needs to be domesticated if it is to take its proper place within the great household of democracy. Democracy. Isn't it it nice that we're allowed to vote for the kind of authorities we tolerate, usually in our own self-image? We luxuriate in being able to criticise authority. We even demonstrate against it when it impinges on our political, economic, social, even vocal boundaries. Some prize it sufficiently to go to war and kill over it. And thus the domestication of authority has been achieved. The reality is much more mundane than that. The authorities we bow to are dictated to us by a handful of people who own the world's media. 
But they do so in such a way that we're deluded into thinking that it is we, the people, who decide what does and does not exercise authority over us. And one consequence of this is that we all too easily demonize, scapegoat, and ban to the margins those who appear too uppity in their relation to perceived authorities, the gods that have been put in place. So it's not surprising that anyone declaring that Jesus taken authority is the right one in today's society is clearly a marked person. So if you're going to shoot me, either do here or here, but not in the leg or the arm. Thank you. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> My wife is now worrying because I'm going off, off script. But in essence, the term authority and its derivatives, to authorize, the authorities, authoritarian, sit uncomfortably in contemporary Vocabularies, they're just not the kind of words you use in polite social intercourse. Now, I labour the point here because we need an understanding of this wider backdrop if we're to understand our own evangelical DNA in relation to authority. I, of course, refer to the, the Protestant fact that we are Protestants. We protest against authority or at least the ones that we deem to be ecclesiastically or theologically amiss. And out of this conflict emerged the quintuplets of sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, glory of God alone, and finally sola scriptura, scripture alone. And these five Reformation solas belie a deeper reality, namely that our existence as Protestants, as Protestants, and that might be a word that just goes over your head, but Quay is sitting there as a Netherlander knowing exactly what I'm talking about. And anyone who lives on the west coast of Scotland knows exactly what I'm talking about in terms of Protestants. Their favourite colour is orange, and their enemies like green. Our sole existence as Protestants is the result of a primary opposition to the then authority of the day. We have then as evangelicals, both culturally and theologically, an uneasy relationship with authority. We can either submit to and uphold it, or we evade its influence tacitly, overtly, or even sometimes passive-aggressively. And yet, Within that same relationship, we affirm completely and confess that Scripture is our authority. That it has a unique status amongst the world's literature as the authority around which every other aspect of our faith turns. This affirmation comes with its own set of unique challenges. Like every shibboleth, there are shades of difference. For example, it could be argued that British evangelicalism has progressed in its cultural and theological sophistication at the same time as its self-relation to scripture has become less and less clear. 
And what results is the maintenance of a very delicate balance between, on the one hand, affirming the authority of Scripture, and yet, on the other hand, doing so in such a way that we don't appear to be fundamentalists. An accusation of crudeness, of so lacking sophistication that one is forever a theological leper. It's a problematic charge to be named fundamentalist with regards to anything regarding one's faith, let alone regarding one's use of scripture. It's to be accused of something so dogmatic, so certain, so excluded, so outside the realms of the spirit of the age that de facto it is unacceptable in today's culture. And should we ever be charged with it academically, it would lead to professional death. Right, I've got your attention. <laughs> I do so deliberately because I think like all great Christian beliefs, the, cu the coupling of authority with scripture brings about its own particular tension and we need to be aware of that when we come to reading scripture. Last week, Conrad described this in terms of the Jewish versus Greek way of thinking, both and versus either or. That is, we want to settle things as either this or that so that we receive, we resolve the tension, we provide an answer, we bring about closure, we love closure. We see the same tension operating when we engage the church's creeds in confessing Jesus Christ to be both everything God is and yet at the same time, everything human beings are. He's not either or, he's both and. A similar tension resides in the Nicene Creed Alison has had us repeating these few past chapel services, that the God we come to know as Father in and through the Lord Jesus Christ is both one and three, one in nature, three in agency, Father, Son and Spirit. And these examples remind us that the high points of our theology find their genesis and ongoing existence within the context of theological tension. And I put it to you that the same goes for the authority of Scripture. It is a tensive article of faith. So as we turn to the texts that were read to us by Jonathan, Ruth, Jerry and Quee, we note that the believer stands in a particular relationship with Scripture. I was led to Psalm 119 and immediately thought, well, that's a good way of using up the service. I can just get people to, to read it and then just give a, a typical five-minute homily at the end. But I love Psalm 119 because there's a real sense of this lived-in-ness kind of relationship that the psalmist is, is repeating again and again and again. What started off probably as liturgy became sacred text as other ancient believers recognized the truthfulness of what the psalmist was saying. He loves, he loves God's precepts. He loves coming under divine authority. It's quite clear that for the writer of the psalm, scripture has an authority for the simple and, let's be honest here, often painful reality that it brings him close to God. 
And so the kind of authority we're talking about here when we talk about the authority of Scripture is not some abstract propositional statement, however truthful it might be, but it's earthed in the reality of the psalmist's relationship with God. The Lord God proves himself as being faithful to his words and actions in delivering the goods in the psalmist's circumstances. That is, in the messy business of being rescued from otherwise overwhelming circumstances, from enemies out to get him, the psalmist discovers that by living in God's words, his commandments, his precepts, and being directed by them, he finds safety, redemption, and stability. I think that's why... The Psalms literally light up when we read them. We, we identify with them. We, we, we recognize something about our experience in the Psalms. We know something. I know that you know that you know that God delivers. That his words have authority. That they're completely different from every other alternative on hand. Whether it's sex, financial security and the one-upmanship that goes with it. Alcohol, drugs, playing happy families, making money, being spiritual, being religious. Workaholism, the list is, the list is endless. God's word trumps them all. That is only as we cling to God's words, it's only as the psalmist clung to God's word that he discovered in his darkest moments just how trustworthy God is. Equally true is the fact that for some of us in chapel, your future holds for you particular and painful circumstances in which you will be forced to throw yourself on scripture. And like Psalm 91 verse 1, take shelter in it and discover and experience the salvation of the Lord. And so what this psalm reminds us is that through the cauldron of life's experiences, sometimes extremely painful, Scripture stops being something out there, something we know about. Some of us know lots about Scripture, and we give faithful assent to it. But rather it becomes the very breath that we breathe, in and out. In and out. In and out. It's the very breath of the believer. And of course, this is the one thing the God of this world does not want us to know much about. And that's why we're reminded about the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God that cuts through the various lies and deceptions that come our way. So as we consider Psalm 119, we read the psalmist declaring his love for God's precepts. And I love this. This is, this is really good Jewish theology. You know why he loves this, God's precepts? Do you know why he loves God's precepts? Because they work. They actually deliver. This is Jewish, in your face, on my plate, eating it really nicely. Thank you very much. Not your abstract theology. They deliver because he's lived in God's precepts. They've, 
acknowledges. They've rescued him. They've saved him. They've made his life livable whilst having to exist around people who just, not just don't like him. You should read some of the Psalms. Some of the Psalms are, my enemies want to kill me. I mean, they're not just, they're not, just not nice people. They actually want to completely annihilate me and then build a temple rejoicing about it on the way. And so in a nutshell, God's words, his precepts, the stuff that makes God God and us us when we live in them, these precepts take on an authority of their own because they deliver. They become the authoritative standard. They become the authoritative norm. They become the authoritative canon under which, by which, in which, from which, to which the psalmist lives out his life. In essence, God's precepts are authoritative because unlike any other coda or instructions, they deliver when everything else doesn't. I know there are people in this room, you've got a PhD in sex, you're promiscuous, that's where you thought you might find life. Some of you have had PhDs in making money and you've discovered, you know what, you get to the top of the tree and you just discover people get uglier and uglier as you get higher and higher up the ladder. And so not surprisingly, like the psalmist, we declare our intention to pursue and live in God's word. That's why you come to Bible college, theological college. Because God has proven to be faithful in his word. And he's discovered that they work. They have power. That's why they're authoritative. They're not dead metaphors. They're real. Now here's where we connect with the opening remark. The psalmist Let's face it here, it's just being a little bit too much of a fundamentalist. I mean, you've got so many verses banging on about the same thing. But I use the term deliberately because the psalmist's circumstances are not happenstance. They are as a result of him directly living in what God has said. And so for nine times he cries out to God, teach me. Verse 12, 26, 33, 64, 66, 68, 124, and 135, for those of you who are listening. And all these cries reveal the psalmist's understanding that there are certain fundamentals that you don't walk away from. And the first one is you can trust God's word. His word is his bond. Unlike the silver-haired gentleman in the city whose word is a dagger that will go straight into you if they can make a quick buck out of you. God's word is his bond. He delivers. That's why it's authoritative. It's not like God said, oh my goodness, I've got to deliver here. They think I'm authoritative. Wham, bang, thank you, ma'am. There you are. But rather... The experience, the lived inness of the believer from 4,000 years ago to sitting right in this room is that God delivers. Oh my goodness, it's painful. Oh my goodness, it doesn't happen overnight. And oh my goodness, it costs blood and sweat. But oh my goodness, God's word delivers. And so as a result of this, Psalm 119 it's an expression of a believer who's willing to fight for, sacrifice for, make space for God's precepts. They're too good to let go of, too important to ignore, too transformational to peddle. And so he gives them authority over his life. In a nutshell, Psalm 119 is simply one long discourse that says, abide in God's words. 
And we see, the same, we see the same dynamic taking place in John's Gospel. Where Jesus affords us a glimpse into the deeply personal face of authority that our Lord Jesus himself had in relation to his Father. Now remember... Conrad reminded us last week, but I was sitting through Conrad's sermon and half of it, I was just thinking, oh my goodness, he's preaching my, he's preaching my preach. <laughs> Conrad reminded us last week that Jesus has made it very clear. He's not come to abolish the law. He's not come to give us a free card, bypass jail and go free. He's, he's come to fulfill it. In addition, he makes quite clear that eternal life or the way to eternal life is located in two simple commands. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbour as you'd like to be loved. And as we've been learning in this semester's relational theology, these two commands contain the whole of the law. Commandments 1 to 4 are about loving God. Commandments 5 to 10 are about how you love your neighbour. So when Jesus refers to his words, he's, he's not being Marcionite in any way. There's not some, some secret, you know, passages of scripture he really loves and the rest where we can just lose. He's embracing it all. And Ian Paul gets to the heart of the issue when he writes that we are united to Jesus and by implication to each other, very simply by abiding in Jesus. How do you abide in another person? Well, let's not get really ugly. But how do I abide in my wife's words? We've got this little, this little phrase in the McFarland household because the beast of the East knocks on our door first before it goes to anybody else, literally. And so my wife has this notion that the cold comes through the windows and then comes through the doors and then hits us. So, with a little phrase, it's called the doors. And as soon as I hear the, ado- the doors... Hi, Hilary. I, I abide in my wife's words. I make sure the doors are closed. That's difficult for someone who lived, brought up living in a large house with a large family and doors were a distraction from getting through to one place from the other and therefore they were never closed, ever, ever closed in my, my household. So I abide, and the evidence of me abiding in my wife's words is we have closed doors. It's not rocket science. It's not by some Holy Spirit, wham, bam, here I am experience. Rather, Jesus uses the analogy of the vine. The grapes are good grapes because they stay on the vine. The disciple is a good disciple because she abides in Jesus' words. Not Guru Nanak's, but Jesus' words. And this abiding is proportional to the degree we keep his commands. I abide in someone's words to the degree I keep their commands. I keep the commands to the degree I'm obedient. I'm obedient to the degree I believe their words have authority and someone else's don't. Love marked bits. But if he was to say in the corridor, the doors, it wouldn't mean anything to me at all. I wouldn't abide in it. Do you get the gist? Because in the McFarlane household, there is one person who is to be obeyed, and it's not Mr. McFarlane. 
So we indwell by being obedient. And we are obedient because we recognize these words are a higher authority than these words. And we recognize that because these words deliver, these words don't. That is, only the Father's words, only the Son's words can fully save, rescue, protect, restore those who commit to live them out in their lives. Now this kind of stance in relation to authority requires us to take a posture that is completely alien to our contemporaries. It lacks any sense of sophistication on our part to come under the Father's words. He says, jump, we just jump. We indwell and abide in his words, not by means of hermeneutical or heuristic sleights of hand, but through faithful obedience, through obedient faithfulness. It is the fundamental stance of faith of having learned that the words correspond to the character, the character corresponds to the ability to achieve these words and for them to keep their word. It's the fundamental stance that despite other more immediate and accessible responses, we choose to take God's word at face value and cling to them, shelter within them, trust them, stand in and upon them, put bluntly, abide in them. It's the fundamental stance of a love that chooses on the basis of what has already been said and seen to step out into the unseen and says, yes, I trust you. Yes, I trust you. We live by faith, not by sight. Jesus calls us to indwell his words, to keep them, to trust his words and the words of the Father and let them do their work in us. In reading them this way, yes, I am being simplistic. But I'm presenting them in this bald way to convey the absolute non-negotiability of what it means to come under the authority of Scripture. It's to come under the authority of persons. And no amount of sophistication changes the simplicity of Jesus' expectation here. He calls us to abide in his word, in his Father's words, in God's word. And yes, I can hear the theological neural pathways and synapses snapping away already. Yes, there are theological outliers. But they cannot be used in some Wizard of Oz kind of way to posture behind and hide. Rather, the very centre of faithful obedience is demonstrated in what the psalmist has done. Only for us it's more sharply focused because we love Jesus' precepts. We love Jesus' words. We love Jesus' laws because we are his disciples. To do anything less is to evidence more the poverty of our own experience of God's faithfulness, of the Father's protection, provision, and elevation. And then I land on what does this mean for us as an academic community? I think there's a specific danger to all of us as an academic community of theologians, biblical scholars, counselors, worship leaders, theological college employees 
I remember to this day a plaque that sat on my undergraduate tutor's desk, and it, it came from George MacDonald, strange one of Conrad's favourite writers, and it says this, There is nothing so deadening to the divine as an habitual dealing with the outsides of holy things. And some decades on, I understand the profundity of this insight. What good are we if we are able to interpret the biblical narratives? If we can easily locate them within their wider context, if we're skilled sufficiently to extrapolate from the inspired text a whole raft of doctrine and locate them within their denominational traditions. If in the development of such skills, we have moved away from living out our common and ordinary faith, we no longer live in the field of force that scripture generates. What benefit is it if you end up inhabiting foreign shelters? However academic or professional, if we no longer find ourselves instinctively availing ourselves of God's hospitality, of indwelling the words of Jesus and our Father, our Father who art in heaven. On the basis of Conrad's sermon last week, I decided, I guess if we cut Jesus when he was around, he would have bled scripture. Such was the extent that he lived in and under the word of God. May it not be that by the time we move on from London's School of Theology that we find ourselves only infrequently indwelling scripture. Rather, may it be by the time we move on from LST, we have spent our time so wisely that, like Thomas Aquinas, we can be called masters of the sacred text, continuously bringing ourselves under the absolute authority of Scripture, of abiding in God's word, by trusting in and being obedient to what Jesus and the Father say and what we see them doing through abandoning ourselves to the power of their words and allowing their spirit to blow across these words and bring them to life in and through our service. Yea and amen. Thank you for listening to the London School of Theology podcast. To find out more about LSD and our courses, please visit our website 